Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of ActorCast, ActorCast episode number 40 and our season one finale. It has been an amazing season of amazing guests and episodes. Thank you so much for joining us on ActorCast for our very first inaugural season. And boy, do we have a great final episode for the season. Our guest is Anita Hollander, and Anita Hollander has written and performed work throughout Europe, Asia, Russia, and America in film, TV, and in live theater. Her award-winning original solo musicals, Still Standing and Spectacular Falls, have played off-Broadway, at the Kennedy Center, White House, nationally and internationally. She currently serves as the SAG-AFTRA National Chair of Performers with Disabilities. And Anita, I have to say, is one of the most passionate people about the arts. I really enjoyed speaking with her on this episode. We talk about what inspired her to pursue a career as a performer, how in a lot of ways it was part of her DNA. We talk a lot about her experiences traveling around the world, performing at different places, and what this taught her about perspective when it comes to people and the performing arts. We also talk about her experience having a disability as a performer and what that meant within the greater entertainment industry. Anita and I really unpack a lot in this episode, so I'm very excited to share it with you all today. If you like this episode, head to actorcast.fm and leave us a review. Leaving a review really goes a long way in spreading awareness about this show, and it would mean so much to us. So head to actorcast.fm and leave us a review there. You could also sign up for our newsletter at actorcast.fm to receive the latest and greatest information on what's happening with this podcast. And it's through there that you will also learn when season two is coming out. So without further ado, let me please introduce today's guest of ActorCast, Anita Hollander. everybody and welcome back to the actor cast today we have an amazing guest joining us on the show her name is anita hollander anita thank you so much for being with us today thank you for having me i'm so excited to be here yes i'm excited to have you here too we had the opportunity to connect through uh, the United Solo Theater Festival uh, organization uh, a little bit ago. I guess it was earlier this year, uh, though I had been familiar with your work before that. And in that conversation, I was just so inspired by your passion for the arts, for your work in the arts. I could tell it was just something that really uh, lit up your world. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have to have Anita on the podcast. So I'm very excited to have you here and, and, and to dive into who you are as an artist and, and, and the work that has made you and the person that you've made your art, you know, so to speak. So it's, it's great to have you here. Thank you so much. So I'm wondering if you could just start off by sharing with us. We chat with a wide variety of different entertainment professionals on on this podcast. You have worked uh, in a wide variety of different aspects within uh, the theater world specifically, though I I know you've also done uh, work in uh, adjacent areas as well. What was it really that perhaps inspired you to pursue a career in the arts? I think I came out of the womb ready to go. Uh, It's a very interesting story. I don't know too many babies like I was, but the legend goes that at the age of one, I piled up the stuffed animals in my crib and jumped out of my crib. (laughs) The only way that my parents knew that something was wrong was it was the only time I ever shut up because I was loud. I 
I just screamed and cried all the time. What's interesting is that my grandmother, Celeste, my mother's mother, died six years before I was born. She was a vaudeville actress. She did the Roberts circuit. I mean, I wish I could show you the picture of her in the leopard skin against the proscenium arch. It's unbelievable. And I look exactly like her. Wow. What I feel is because her life was cut off, cut short, and I know this sounds kind of psychic, but because her life was cut short by cancer, and this was many, many, many years ago when there wasn't the kind of uh, things to help her as there are now, and she died, I think six years later, she came back as me because all through my life, my mother has said, oh my gosh, you look just like my mom. Oh my, you know, at each age wow. thing as I was adulting, you know, and getting... And I think I brought with me the genetic structure of my grandmother. So if we want to go on the science route and not the psychic route, I inherited the theater gene. I mean, this is the first time I've actually said the scientific part, but I think I did <laughs> because I was ready to go from day one. And at the age, and up until the age of four, my dad would bring home musical theater albums from Broadway. We lived in Cleveland, Ohio, but we did yearly annual pilgrimages to New York to see the latest Broadway shows but in the in the in the midst of those years he would bring home the latest Broadway album I listened to all those albums over and over again by the age of four I had memorized quite a few Broadway shows and at the age of four my mother and father took me to uh, an event of the Hungarian Benevolent Society because my dad's side of the family comes from Hungary. My mom's comes from Russia. So we go to this this little fun thing and it was a magic show for kids and the magician is setting up and he says, does anyone want to come up and do something like sing a song or something while we're setting up? And before my mother knew I had left my seat, I was on the stage, four years old. This <laughs> is how the legend goes. Four years old, on the stage. Was I singing Mary Had a Little Lamb? No. I was singing I'll Know When My Love Comes Along from Guys and Dolls with oh the dialogue in between the verses. I said everything. But because at four, I, I had a bit of a stutter. I was like so anxious to say everything that I would trip over my own words. So it was more like, because I was very anxious to sing the whole song. And chemistry? Yes, chemistry. Well, the, the audience had no clue what this four-year-old child was doing on the stage. But I knew, and my mom knew what I was doing. But she was like, how did she get to the stage? I didn't even know she left. So she tells me that, it was my first public performance, and uh, from then on, she has said recently, we just didn't know what to do with you. You surprised us all the time. You looked like a klutz when you walked around normally. You know, I was falling down. I had a very low voice from screaming for the first, you know, year of my life. I had nodes on my throat. I didn't look like I could ever see succeed at anything until she took me to a Delcro's dance class and she said, you were a completely different person when you danced on the stage. Neighbors would say, did you know she could dance? I mean, this is what was so funny is that I was, it was in my DNA. Once you got me onto a stage, every minute up to that stage, not so much. But I would rehearse for my adulthood in the living room while my older sister went to kindergarten. I had to wait a year because I was born November 30th, and I had to wait a year to go to kindergarten. So I was old enough. I mean, I was ready to go, but instead I, I staged musicals in the living room to the albums of the Broadway shows. And my mother would flip the albums in the stereo as soon as they, you know, came to intermission. And I would go into the hallway where I had set up my own little New York apartment. I was really That's young. That's amazing. But I had an apartment. I had an elevator. I had a foyer. I, every, it was like I would go out of the foyer and come into the elevator area, which was the front door. Then I'd come into the living room and I'd rehearse and I'd do my shows. Do you know that all these years later, here I am in New York City, and for the past like 20 years, I, I've been doing shows, or actually the past uh, 
10 years or so, I've been doing shows at a theater around the corner from my apartment in Midtown Manhattan. <laughs> like, walk out the door, go around, into the stage door, into my rehearsals or into my performances over at Theater Row, and then come home. And I realized this was what I was rehearsing for. Mr. Rogers said that childhood play was a rehearsal for your life, and that was exactly what I did. So I know oh that's God. a long way around telling you this, but I didn't. I somehow didn't need inspiration. It was already just built into me, and that's why going back to rehearsals, same place, this past three weeks after COVID and everything, has been like. I know why it feels like home, because this is me. This is what I do. This is where I feel the most comfortable. And even though, it, you know, I got to learn the lines and that's frustrating and, you know, all of those things. But inside I know, well, it's going to come. You just have to keep, and, and now I know. But, but no matter how many frustrations there are, it's where I live. It's where I am, so... It's a pretty cool thing. <laughs> yeah, oh my gosh. Yeah, it's amazing. I, I think it, it really goes back to how a lot of artists feel that they have to, to do it, like that, that they would die un unless they didn't. And specifically your story, it's amazing to hear about how in so many ways through your grandmother and then just through your behavior when you were so young, it really was wired in your DNA. I love that story of how... <laughs> You would pretend to have your own Manhattan apartment and go to the rehearsals and performances, come back and like that. That's amazing. And I, I, I think that that really shows, too, and how you talk about you and your work is, is that like it's it's something very visceral. There's something visceral about that, that it's it's coming from the heart. You know, it, it's not just a job. It, it's something more than that. And hearing about. You know, just that that you rehearsing, living and working in Manhattan, and now that's come true. It's it's fascinating. In addition to Manhattan, though, you've also have traveled all around the world as a performer, which I think always offers its own kind of unique perspective on the performing arts. So I would love for you to talk about what you learned as a performer traveling to all of these different places. Great question. Um, I, I think that for everyone, travel, travel educates you in the fact that we're not, Americans are not the only people on earth. And American culture is not the only culture in the world, and I'm fascinated with that stuff. And I think it was, uh, well, my dad took us, uh, when I was around 17, my dad took us all to Europe, my three sisters and I, and my mom and dad, and we um, drove in a van across Europe. And this, to me, was just so, such a revelation. We, it was a revelation to us all. But it's an interesting thing, Patrick, the goal of the trip, and my mom had a lot to do with this too, since we came from Eastern European ancestors and since there was a history of how and why our families came to America, it was important for them, to them, that we see some of that. And we went to a concentration camp in Dachau in Germany. Not many 17-year-olds or, you know, 12-year-olds, my sister Rachel was 12, not many kids are taken to a concentration camp on a vacation. And a lot of my friends were like, why would you go there? It was so amazing because of perspective. So Patrick, my big word all the time is perspective. Everyone, each person's perspective, a character's perspective, the audience's perspective, so many, there are so many perspectives. And we needed that in our lives, I think, to know that something terrible did happen, but that life goes on. We're here. We were born, you know, our families came from Russia and Hungary, and that there is a whole world out there that is different from where we come from. And I loved that, and I couldn't get enough of it at the time. We would go to each place, and I love navigating. I hate driving. I have a driver's license, but I hate it. But my dad was the driver and everything, but I loved navigating. And when we got to Amsterdam, which with 
our last name being Hollander, uh, which is a really important thing for us to go to where they actually call Dutch people Hollanders, even though we're Hungarian and Russian, and it <laughs> comes from the Hungarian name Hollander. But, it, you know, at Ellis Island, they changed it. But still, if you're going to have a name that's spelled like the country, you should go. And um, when we got to Amsterdam, I mapped out our whole day in the city. And I didn't, I just did it by map. Well, I want to go to the Van Gogh Museum and I want to, you know, I want to go to a theater. We have to see a theater somewhere, you know. And years later, I would go back, I would be back in Amsterdam touring with a theater company that toured through Belgium, Holland, and Wales. It was a British theater company, which I was um, cast because I went to Lambda, London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art, for a one-year overseas program, which I had no expectations. I was just so happy to be accepted because they only accepted four women and 11 men for the course. I was wow. like out of a 1,000 people who auditioned. And I just, that's all. I just wanted to go to London and spend a year there. I'm zipping all over history here. But um, because it's so funny how you do one thing and then some years later you're somewhere else and you're where you were before and again your perspective is different although you have the memory that you've been here before and uh, we went to the Anne Frank house of course because that's part of our heritage too but it it was so so exciting to hear another language I love languages and when we toured when this British company toured in Holland the country of Holland going all over the place I spent the whole uh, three months learning to speak Dutch just because that was a really great thing to do so um, we've gone to Japan I've gone to Japan with the theater company I'm working with now theater breaking through barriers and I learned some Japanese because each time we'd have this tour manager or someone taking us around it being our interpreter and I would utilize the time by learning the language of the country I was in. Now we we went to Zagreb and I didn't learn Croatian but we were only there for a few days but uh, but in Japan I really wanted to learn uh, how to say at least basic things so I could say hello and thank you and goodbye and stuff like that because thank you so important and sorry I knew I was going to have to say sorry a lot so and that's my favorite one in American Sign Language uh, I got I learned that sign before anything else but um, because I'm a clod <laughs> so awkward socially awkward but um but all these places, oh, and then Korea in December of 2019, another aspect came about. In the other instances, I was doing performances, productions that were already written and that had scripts and music and everything. When I went to Korea, I brought my own show. And that's the one, and that I've written two shows and one solo show was still standing, the first one I did at United Solo Festival. I've done both there, but that was the first one. And I took it to Korea. They invited me uh, because they felt my show was exactly what they wanted to show about disability, about the ability of people with disabilities and the artistic artists with disabilities because there's this whole beautiful theater that's really geared towards disability funded wow. by the government funded by the government that's amazing I, I, I told them how lucky they were but not just any theater brand new gorgeous every element in korea it's so important to them that art is beautiful that the lighting has to be perfect when we did the tech they said no no and i was speaking through an interpreter did though learn the Korean national anthem and I sang it to them after every show because <laughs> again I want to learn something but through an interpreter they would say um, yes but what exactly do you see in this moment and I'm like it's okay you know I've got three areas of light I mean I have a light plot and I said no and they said no we really want to make it absolutely perfect and boy did they ever they, you know, and behind me on a screen was the, my all of my words in Korean. On my left was an, an, a deaf interpreter doing Korean sign language because wow. it was 
for the, which was very tricky. And I had my English sign language interpreter for the Q&A when they would ask questions. And she was fabulous and so adorable. And these people didn't want anything to be wrong. Nothing, nothing. Even though the rest of the city had its problems with accessibility, that was why this institution, this, this beautiful theater in the heart of the theater district existed because they felt that it was time that the rest of, to catch up with the rest of the world in accessibility for people with disabilities because Asians have traditionally not accepted disability. It's a shame element. It's like if you have a disabled child, keep them at home. We don't want to see them. They shouldn't be out in the open. They shouldn't be public. And it's oh, wow. been a thing for, for centuries. I mean, there are countries that used to throw their disabled babies into a pit and let them die. I mean, it goes back to the beginning of time. The Asians have been feeling that is a shame thing. That's why the Japanese also, uh, this theater company that is devoted to disability and is it's very important to them that, that we come and perform with them and that we, and it's because the artistic director's daughter uh, had a disability and he wanted to show her because she loves acting. She has, She's on the autism spectrum and loves acting. And he wanted to show her that she could do that. And it's just all over the world there are these pockets. Like in Paris, for many years, there was a festival called Orphée, um, which doesn't seem to be going right now. But it gathered a database of all the theater companies throughout the world that had anything to do with disability, which they found online. Yeah. And they found the one that I'm performing with now, Theater Breaking Through Barriers. There's, there is a network out there. And the um, International Federation of Actors, which is called FIA because it's in Italian, FIA, which is not doesn't line up with the English. But since I was the national chair of performance with disabilities for SAG-AFTRA, they we hooked up our union with their the union of actors all over the world and started started making them more aware of disability. And so there's that element of all the travel. But in general, oh, I've been to Russia. I sang Memory in Russian. Oh I only had gosh. 10 days notice. In 10 days notice, I'd never spoken Russian in my life. I'm musical director at a temple, at a synagogue down in the village. And the educating, the educator, the head edge, the chief of the, the head of the education is Russian, like really Russian. And so he sat with me. I, I had done it by phonetics off, off something online on a YouTube. And he sat with me and made sure I was pronouncing it right and that I had the right words. And within in 10 days, I went on stage in Russia at a film festival and sang Memory in Russian because I was told they knew the musical Cats. And so I did it in Russian. And then um, those were the days, which is an, oh, like a, a popular 60s song in America. Paul McCartney, I think, did the translation. But it was a Russian drinking song. And I found it online. And so I, they, they asked me if I could do a sing-along song. I'm going, but you see, I have a tendency to be too literal when people ask me for things. I think they meant pick an American and English song that everybody knew in Russia and they could do it even if they couldn't speak well I, this what they what they said to me translated to me as do something in Russian so I did those were the days singing the verses in English but singing the chorus in Russians and people they all just started singing with me oh, that's so amazing. this is what I love I I, can, I can't really say enough about travel and what I've learned from it, but but I can't I never can wait to get on get out there again and especially I mean I've never been to Australia I've never been to Africa my daughter has uh, and she said mom you have to go and and those will be my next adventures because I I do collaborate with a guy in Australia so it's like. It it's amazing uh, just hearing about all of these different stories and how it relates back to, you know, what, what you were originally saying about perspective and how it, it really, uh, the different places you've been alter your perspective about the world in, you know, from what it sounds like, a, a lot of uh, amazing, positive ways. I'm wondering, I, as you know, with being in the arts, it's 
while it's very fulfilling and very rewarding, it also has its challenges as well. And I know you were talking a lot about your work in with people with disabilities as someone who has a, a disability as well. I'm curious, what have been some of the, the biggest um, adversities that you have faced uh, within the entertainment industry? Yeah, I lost my leg in 1982. Up until then, well, in 1977, I had cancer for the first time, and I was a junior at Carnegie Mellon, which is wow. hard to get into there, too. Um, and I, I, I know that if I had a brace on my leg when I auditioned, uh, see what happened in 77, both times I had cancer, it was a tumor, a malignant tumor inside my nerve, inside my motor nerve of my left leg. It's very unusual, and it took... 10 doctors and 10 different hospitals and everything and had to go from Cleveland to New York to find out what was wrong with my leg and when I found out it was very unusual and it was very painful and so the first time the first operation that happened in New York they they took out the motor nerve and put a brace on my leg so I was paralyzed from the knee down couldn't wear high heels because the the brace kept my foot from falling down still went back to Carnegie Mellon uh six weeks after the surgery and with a brace on my leg, no hair on my head because I had had chemo and uh, was having radiation treatments every morning. But I was back at school because I was not, I was, I was dying at home. I was like, this is not okay. Went back and, and ended up spending that summer being an assistant on the voice training department for the high school program, the pre-college program, so that I caught up to my class and ended up graduating with my class despite the, um, the time that I had been out having my surgery. Um, and then, uh, so I had a brace on my leg. And, in, and I'm in my senior year and I'm auditioning for Summerstock and for London Academy and stuff, and I know I've got a brace on my leg underneath my tights. It's just plastic. It doesn't. It's not a big metal thing. It's it's very subtle, and it goes. It's very. It was very slim, but it kept my foot from no pointing. You know, no no ballet, <laughs> or at least not at this point. And um, I was going to these auditions, and I'm like, just do it, just do it, and see what see what happens. You know, because I had to learn how to walk again and then how to bend my knee again because, you know, it was pretty traumatic. I even had to go through my, learn to my, I had to learn voice all over again because the trauma took my voice away. So it was like all these things while I'm trying to graduate with my class at Carnegie Mellon and auditioning in the spring for jobs and for London. To my huge surprise, I got the summer, a great summer stock job. And, and one of the three shows I'd be doing was Glass Menagerie, where a Laura has a brace on her leg. Well, the, pra- the brace at my audition was under the tights. But when I actually showed up for the job that summer, they said, oh, my God, we thought you were walking that way because you were auditioning for Laura. We didn't know you actually had a brace on your leg. I was like, it's okay, I got the job. And then I did Evie and Stop the World, I Want to Get Off, which is a lot of mime and then a lot of singing. There's there's all this like miming going upstairs and stuff. But with this flexible brace, I was doing it and nobody knew I had a brace. It was just so amazing. So, and when I auditioned and got the summer stock thing, at the same time, I went for the auditions for London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art, which is called Lambda. And I go in for my audition and I, I'm on a stage. And the auditioners, the head of the school, are sitting at a level where their eye level is right where my brace is on my leg. And I, and I go in and I'm about to launch in my audition. No, in my part of my brain is saying they can see the brace. Even underneath my tights, you can see little indentations. Their eye level is watching the brace on my leg. And I'm going, okay, so I'm just going to have fun because I'm not getting this. They only want four females. I, I'm not getting this, so I'm just going to enjoy myself. And I sang and I did a monologue and I had a great time. And then at the end of my audition, they I think they said something about the effect of, we notice you have something on your leg. And I said, yes, I have a brace on my leg. I just survived cancer a year ago. And um, 
it doesn't seem to get in the way of anything. And they said, oh, no, 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 we think it's wonderful because one of our very famous students uh, is Anna Calder Marshall, and she has a withered leg. Have you ever seen her before? She, a withered leg is what she had because she had had polio or something. I'm not sure what she had, but from the knee down, like my leg, it was very thin, and she, too, had a certain kind of walk. But she became famous on the BBC. I had seen her in programs and didn't know. I didn't know she had a disability. But then I went and looked up things and saw that, indeed, she had an unusual walk, uh, an, an unusual gait. Well, that helped me get the damn thing, wow. I think, because they, they were so excited that there was... I mean, so different from what Carnegie Mellon would have said had I walked in the first audition. I would have never gotten in because they were all about a perfect shape, a perfect size. They learned, I think, a little bit from me becoming disabled in my junior year, coming back to school, doing doing my fight, my stage fighting exam with a brace on my leg and passing. I think the people there then learned something. And I don't know how they've done throughout the years about high, uh, about um, accepting forms with disabilities, but that's one of my goals is to work with them on that. And But those people who were there at that time really learned something that uh, you don't have to be perfect, but you can get these jobs and you can get into the London Academy. <laughs> I mean, it, it was amazing to me that I got the two things I wanted was the particular summer shock job, which I went out of my way to Pennsylvania, across Pennsylvania to the other end of Pennsylvania to audition for because it was Laura in Glass Menagerie and Evie in Stop the World and a Gershwin review. I'd been doing Gershwin since I was a child. It was the perfect job. I didn't know if I'd get it. I was up for other jobs, but I was so excited to get that one and to get um, the London thing in the same week got these acceptances and it was like I'm going to be okay and you know what the same thing happened five years later when I lost my leg I was it was a recurrence of the tumor and this time they couldn't save the leg and it was a good idea to get rid of it because it was dying on me from the radiation and all that stuff it's terrible to watch part of your body actually die on you and I felt for it it was really suffering and so we that happened while I was rehearsing Jacques Brel is Alive and Well and Living in Paris in Boston. That was the production name. And it was in Boston. And I was directing it and I was in it. And they had to amputate on March 12th. And we opened the show four weeks later. April 15th, wow. we opened the show with me on stage after having my leg removed. Once again, I had this thing that was there telling me, you can do this. You're going to be okay. You're going to get back on the stage. And I know that your question was, what about the obstacles? And I was just telling you where I didn't have the obstacles. But here's the thing. I moved from Boston after about a year and a half after my amputation. I got a job teaching at NYU in the experimental theater wing. And I was always looking for a way to move to New York where I wasn't just going to New York with nothing. I got this job because I'd been doing some teaching in Boston, voice teaching, because I'd learned so much from my own experience of rebuilding my voice after trauma. Someone hired me to come down to NYU, and I thought, perfect, this is my way to move to New York and know that I have a job. Not, not a like, huge paying job, but NYU also helped me find housing that I could afford, and right in Washington Square, it was just an amazing thing. So that helped me. Once I got to New York, was when things got hard. And one of my favorite teachers at Carnegie Mellon said, I don't know if it's a good idea to move to New York, Nita, because when you get there, you're, it shines a really, really cold light on you and what you are, you know, that you have one leg. <laughs> I was like, okay. I never really worried about that because the minute I moved to New York, I felt more comfortable. I felt like I was in the right place because my dad had brought us there every year and it was like, this is where I'm going to live someday. And as as you know, I pretended to live there through my childhood. So, so it was the right thing to do. However, navigating New York with an artificial leg was really challenging. 
and painful at times, going up and down the subway stairs and, and just getting places. And it's a walking city, and I love walking, but the, I had so little left of my leg that I was operating the entire leg with just only two inches of bone. and wow. Not much there. Not much to go on. But it didn't matter because I still did it. And at one point, and I would go to auditions, and by the way I walked into the audition, by the way I walked on the artificial leg, one director stopped me and didn't let me audition at all. Just told me, this really isn't the right kind of show for you. No, it was a comedy. And I was already doing cabaret I was already in two workshops at BMI and ASCAP. I, I immediately, when I knew I was going to be teaching at NYU, I, I auditioned for and applied to many things. And BMI and ASCAP are the two music licensing organizations in New York and nationally uh, who do training and workshops for people who write music. So, And I got into both of those, so I was doing that. I was taking the songs I was singing for the other writers and taking them to cabarets and doing shows which showcased the new music by new writers. And uh, so I was already doing stuff when I went to this audition where this director, she, she was so uncomfortable and didn't even stop to ask, didn't look at my resume full of like, I was opening for Rodney Dangerfield at the Improv and, and um, Ray, Ray Romano wow. and Brett Butler and Stephen Wright and Robin Williams and Penny Marshall. I was opening for these people already. And they were like, and there were these people who were like so, they didn't even look at my resume to see that I had been doing the exact thing that this show was. But by the way I walked in, I didn't get it. And I had another casting director who actually liked me, but he said, such a shame that you're so talented. Yeah, because I was like, he was telling me right then and there after I did a monologue that... I'm never going to be able to get you cast in anything, so I'm really sorry. It's such oh a shame. Oh, my gosh. I mean, to be told that when you know you're being told, it's like this backhanded compliment saying, you're so good, too bad, I'll, you'll never get a job. And so I had those things going on at the same time as I was getting work. I was still getting work. I played Helen, Helen, Helene Hemp in 84 Sharon Cross Road out in New Jersey. I was getting these wonderful jobs uh, while at the same time the Broadway folks kept saying things like, you know, you're so good. I don't know what to do with you. You know, wow. <laughs> it's like I was up for Broadway shows in my life, in, in the span of the career. I've been up for seven, very like down to the last two people for seven Broadway shows and it always ends up being the non-disabled actor who gets the role. And um, I mean, there's one that's, that's, uh, now, since, all I'll say is that in 1983, when I came to New York, I was immediately sort of pushed into a committee at Equity, at Actors' Equity, about people, uh, for performers with disabilities. It was a new committee, and everyone was saying, you need to be here. And I realized that I needed, they needed me to be there more than I feel, felt I needed to be there. But that started my advocacy. Not that I hadn't been advocating for people with disabilities because ever since I had a brace on my leg, if I walked onto a stage, I was advocating. You're already an automatic advocate because, and I was t touring for the American Cancer Society, talking about how I was able to go on with my life and later I was in the, to get married, to have a child and do all these things on one leg. And, so I was being an advocate right away, but specifically through the unions for performing artists, that was when my advocacy and activism started in 83, when I realized I could be a spokesperson because I was a working actress with a disability, not an aspiring actor with a disability, but rather a working one. And from then on, people just kept going, you should be chair of this committee. You should be there chair of the tri-union committee. You should uh, head up this other thing. You need to go speak to the Writers Guild, the Directors Guild, the Producers wow. Guild, the Casting Society of America. And uh, it's been exhausting, but, but because of all of that advocacy, we are where we are now. And I have charted this process through what I call the Watchdog Report, charting where performers with disabilities appeared starting 
I started it at 2009 because that's when we started a three-year campaign of the whole industry called IMPWD, uh, Inclusion in Arts and Media for People with Disabilities. And we just, we talked to the producers in Hollywood, we talked to the Broadway League here, we talked to film, television, theater people. We, um, I sang to them. We, <laughs> we invited them for lunch. We, we just... We just started inundating the industry with our message that we are here, we have stories to tell, and we have talents to tell them ourselves. And that's when the ball really was getting rolling, so I started keeping track. And in 2009, the list of non-disabled actors playing disabled roles was way high, and the list of disabled actors playing disabled roles, or any roles at all, was way low. And between 2009 and 2021, 2021, that list has completely changed. We have almost obliterated the list. Like there may be two or three that are holdouts in the film industry. Thank you very much. They're really way behind. But um, where pe- people with, disabil- with people without disabilities are playing disability and the list of performers with disabilities being hired, particularly TV series and also theater, has gone wacko. I mean, it's like we just crossed the 50 PWDs hired this year. Uh, 50 plus is way higher than we've ever been. We were counting seven people, 17 people, you know, like half a percent. But it has changed. And even through COVID, it continued to improve. Um, I worked all through COVID. I, I just took everything I did and went online. And many others did too. And then when the TV production came back, they you could see the Casting Society of America took our our um, took on our cause and really, like a few years ago, just put up hundreds of us on tape and just stopped accepting the excuse that we didn't exist so there was no pool so how could anybody find us if there's no acting pool there were people all along the way that decided we will help and we will change because and part of it was they told me like chief negotiator of the AMPTP in Hollywood which is the alliance of motion picture and television producers She's the chief negotiator, a very tough woman. And once she came up to me and she said, Anita, it's like impossible to say no to you because you're never angry. You, I mean, you're just not angry. You're, you're, you give us all this information and you act like we're all in this together, which we are. And, and that, it was really great to hear that from somebody who says no for a living. She, she told me, she said, my job is to say no in negotiations. She said, I can never say no to you. And, and she, for her to even say that to me was a, a little out of place for her job because that's not her job. And we got a task force together between producers and between the networks and the movie studios and performers with disabilities. And at that time, I brought in Troy Kotzer, who's a star of CODA. Um, I brought in Ali Stroker, who had that, at that point had not done um, Glee and had not gotten the time. You know, she was... It was like 10 years before she would be doing Broadway and all this stuff. And, but she was, she was out there. And I knew her because we had performed at the same theater. Not together, but in different seasons. And, um, and I brought in uh, Chill Mitchell, a black actor who started out as non-disabled and then was in an accident and then ended up in a wheelchair, but has a regular, a series regular role on um, C- uh, NCIS Nolan wow. New Orleans. He's the guy, the computer operator guy. And I, I brought in all of these great people who proved that we we have jobs. We work in this industry. You're not looking at one person going, please help my friends. I was saying, you know, we're all we're all working. There's a person who's blind. There's a person who's deaf. There's a person, you know, and the and Troy, who the deaf actor, also was then directing a film. So you could say that he's a director. And this woman over here, she's written her own, th- and I've written my own show and stuff. So they really listened. And because I was part of the first ABC showcase where they showcased diversity, which is was in 2000, uh, I was lucky to get into that. And 
I set a precedent that you have to have somebody with a disability in each of your showcases, which sometimes they didn't do, and we got on them when they didn't. But, but it was funny sitting at this table at AMPTP, and this was about 10 years after that first ABC showcase, and one of the people from the ABC network, she was like, oh, Anita, we've known each other for 10 years. Kim, Lee, we know each other. I was like, oh, my gosh, it's you. And I realized that I knew more of the people across the table than I thought. I, you know, you always think, well, now we're going to negotiate and they're the enemy. The, the guy from CBS, his wife went to school with my husband. Oh, I mean, wow. It was like <laughs> there, there were all of these, these interactions and ways that we – that I knew the people across the table and they would they said we like talking to you because you don't you don't attack you just you you help us find resources and find a way that our next pilot season we can actually call for you guys to come in for any kinds of roles and they did and that was December of 2014 and so the pilot season of December of 2015 was starting to look different at least the auditions were so it's a perspective on how things have changed. We're still working on it. We're still trying to, you know, keep it going out there. But certainly Broadway changed a great deal because in um, years past, there was one year, I think it was 2017 maybe, where 47th Street, Broadway theaters, each of the theaters was doing a, a play about disability and not one of those plays featured a disabled actor not one oh, and there wow. were pl- the pl- oh literally you could map all these plays the elephant man cripple of Inishman, the normal heart miracle worker glass menagerie you know it was like, well glass menagerie then came a little while after, and they did get an actress with a disability for, to play Laura, along with Sally Field playing Amanda. And then, and then we had, Allie was in Spring Awakening. Well, Spring Awakening came from Deaf West, who years before had come from L.A. to do um, Big River. So they, they were pioneers of of having performers with disabilities on Broadway, but nothing else, you know, then there was like nothing. And then then with Allie being in Spring Awakening, and then then she got Oklahoma. But in the meantime, Russell Harvard, deaf actor, he worked with Glenda Jackson at, in King Lear and is now doing To Kill a Mockingbird. And, and there were deaf actors in um, uh, Children of a Lesser God, Roundabout. And there were two actors with down syndrome roundabouts other theater doing amy and the orphans and then greg muscala and katie sullivan actors with disabilities doing the pulitzer prize winning play cost of living and manhattan theater club and things really started to roll it was 2018 2019 and so people are looking at us differently now and it's progress yeah it's it really is amazing just like also hearing about how far it's come as well and you know obviously the theater world is consistently evolving and and making these change moving changes moving forward is is so important Uh, anita i i cannot thank you enough for taking the time to join me on this show it's it's been some valuable to go back to your word perspective uh to to really uh learn about your career and and to learn about how yes despite uh you know that the challenges that you have faced in your life you're able to turn them into positives and really make lasting change for for people in this industry and to create art that resonates with all types of people so i i'm so proud to to be able to have you on the actor cast but before we part ways today i'm just wondering uh, if you could share with our listeners where they could find out more information about you and your work and about your solo shows as well as as you were uh, briefly mentioning earlier right um so my my uh website is uh, www.anitahollander.com a-n-i-t-a-h-o-l-l-a-n-d-e-r anitahollander.com and you can find out lots more about me you can also find the cds of my shows and but but in fact 
you can find you can find the music that I've written, the shows I've written. One is Still Standing, one is Spectacular Falls. And if you really brought up Anita Hollander Still Standing or Anita Hollander Spectacular Falls, you would you'd be able to hear some of the really fun music in the shows. Also the show I am about to do that I'm, we're in Tech Week for is called Brecht on Brecht about Bertolt Brecht. It's all of his, well, it's a collection of his writings, songs, and messages, which speaks very much to where we are as a country right now. Very, very relevant, even though he was writing this in the time of World War II and all the things that happened then, and a lot of interesting connections. Uh, I think it's a very moving show and uh, entertaining show and ultimately hopeful. It can give people some hope and perspective uh, for the time we're living in. And if you want to know more about Brecht on Brecht, you go to tbtb.org. T as in Tim, B as in boy, T as in Tim, B as in boy, tbtb.org. And you can find out how it's off Broadway and it opens, um, actually first public performances are October 19th. So thank you for letting me say that. And I wanted to, I wanted to say two things that tra about the travel question, that it gives us humility. We look around us and we see how people tackle things that we have to tackle as well. We see how people live their lives in many countries, more about culture, in other countries more about rest and relaxation and giving yourself a break, giving yourself a chance to enjoy life. Ah, what a concept. So the humility factor of knowing there's a great big world, which is getting smaller and smaller as we know each other better, but the humility that you feel. And the last thing is that I often tell people, and you've, you've probably heard this before, people who are listening, that if you can't do anything else, uh, then go ahead and be an actor. But if you can do anything else really, really well, you should do that. I, I am lucky to be able to act, sing, dance, write music, write plays, teach, musical direct, produce, direct. I, I've done so many different things in this, and I always used to say, I'll do any of these things if it pays. You know, I'll do whatever I can do for to get paid. And it helps to be multi-able multi at a lot of different things if you are in this industry. But as many people will tell you, it's not easy. And you have to know it's not easy so that you can get through the rejections, which there are many. Right. Oh, those those are some amazing parting words of advice for, for our listeners today. So, Anita, thank you so much again. Can't thank you enough. Thank you so much, Patrick. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of ActorCast. And thank you for tuning in to season one of the ActorCast podcast. It has been a great journey going through these episodes with you all, and we very much look forward to seeing you again in season two, where we will have a wide variety of other new and amazing guests from the entertainment industry. If you liked this episode, head to ActorCast.fm and leave us a review. You could also sign up for our newsletter at ActorCast.fm. Thank you so much for joining us again for this episode and for Season 1, and we'll catch you all in Season 2 of ActorCast.